Reading from Genesis chapter 3. Now the serpent was more shrewd than any beast of the field which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Did God really say, You shall not eat from any tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat from the fruit of the trees of the garden, but from the fruit of the tree which is in the middle of the garden, God has said, You must neither eat it nor touch it, lest you die. And the serpent said to the woman, Die? You will not die. Rather, God knows that in the day you eat from it, then your eyes will be opened and you will be as gods, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was pleasant to the eyes and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took some of its fruit and ate. And also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. And the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves aprons. And they heard the voice of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God amongst the trees of the garden. The Lord God called unto Adam and said to him, Where are you? And Adam said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid, because I was naked, and I hid myself. And God said, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat fruit from the tree that I forbid you to eat from? And the man said, The woman you gave to me, she gave me the fruit from the tree and I ate it. And the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? And the woman said, The serpent tricked me and I ate. And the Lord God said to the serpent, Because you've done this, you are cursed above all cattle and above every beast of the field. Upon your belly you shall go, and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. It shall crush your head, and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman he said, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In sorrow you shall bring forth children, and your desire shall be to your husband, and he shall rule over you. And to Adam he said, Because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree, of which I commanded you, saying, You shall not eat from it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In sorrow shall ye eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to you. And you shall eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of your face shall you eat bread till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For dust you are, and unto dust you shall return. And the Lord God said, Behold, this man has become as one of us to know good and evil. And now, lest he put forth his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the garden of Eden to till the ground from whence he was taken. So he drove out the man and placed at the east of the garden of Eden cherubims and a flaming sword which turned every way to guard the way of the tree of life. Just to review briefly this morning, we talked about how Adam was made in the image of God, and that the image of God consists of knowledge, righteousness, and true holiness, according to Colossians and also Ephesians. Knowledge not merely being knowledge about God, but the knowledge, the intimate, thorough knowledge that leads to true fellowship with God. Righteousness meaning in the context of the court of law, that Adam was guiltless. He was not a sinner. No charge could be brought against him before his judge, and so therefore he required no mediator. 
And that in fact, he, through his righteousness, gained all the blessings of the word of God that were promised to righteousness. And then thirdly, we considered that he had true holiness, that he was upright in every way. Most importantly, inside, leading to outward obedience to God. That you could sum him up in the two great commandments. Thou shalt love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. Of which it could be said of Adam that this was true without exception. And that you shall love your neighbor as yourself. Equally true. And so we left Adam this morning in his state of natural beauty. His beautiful righteousness and holiness that he was created in. Unfathomable to us. And we left him with that beauty of holiness in a perfectly holy world. In which there was no death, no sin, no suffering, none of the things that we see around us today. So, how did we get from there to here, where we are, what we are? Well, of course, Adam did not remain in the state in which he was created, but he sinned. And he fell from this excellence that he had. Now, immediately this morning, some of you saw the obvious question, which is, if Adam was perfect, if Adam was righteous and holy and without taint of sin and could stand before God in his righteous perfection and be called very good by his Creator, how in the world could he sin? And not only how could he sin, but how could he sin the way he sinned? Well, that is a very complex question. And I am not going to pretend to be able to answer it uh, fully. But we can lay out a few facts, a few things that we can know for sure. Because in point of fact, the scriptures merely present to us the event. They present to us what Adam was like, and they then present to us what Adam did, and they then present to us the results of what Adam did. And they don't really dig into the question of how exactly that could be. But we can say a few things. We can say five things, in fact. Number one, God is not the author of sin. So you can put that thought right out of your head. James 1.13, Let no man say when he is tempted, I am tempted of God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, neither does he tempt any man. Because, 1 John 1.5, God is light, and in him is no darkness at all. Zero. None. He doesn't tempt anyone because tempting people is a wicked thing to do. And so God doesn't do it. And so God is not the author or creator of sin. However, God was not surprised. Nor was he overturned in his purposes. Because God is sovereign. 
and in control of all things. Now, we can say this, and it's in all the standard uh, Protestant reform confessions, including our own, that God permitted the tempter to tempt them, and he did so knowing what the outcome would be. Satan didn't, you know, sneak up and trick God. I'm going to go in here and mess up the Garden of Eden. Won't that be great? And God's all worried. No, it's not like that. In spite of what you hear on the radio constantly about what happened in this situation, he was not surprised. His purposes were not thwarted because God, from before the foundation of the world, from before the creation event ever took place, saw the end from the beginning, purposed the end before the beginning for his own glory. That's fact number two. Fact number three, coming closer to home about Adam. How could Adam, if he was perfect, do this? Well, Adam, we can say, was perfect, but as the theologians would say, he was mutable. That is, he could change. There was no guarantee that Adam would stay the same forever. He's not like God. God is immutable. God changes not. But Adam was merely a creature, as was Satan, as were the angels who fell. They were all merely creatures of God who, though created in holiness and righteousness and perfection to reflect God's glory and and to bear the image of God, could change. It was possible. And in fact, it's proven because he did change, as did the angels who fell. Now, that doesn't explain exactly how it's possible that a perfect person could commit sin. And I'm not going to explain that. So, uh, we'll go to fact number four. Adam, this is getting closer to an explanation, Adam had free will. Now, that may sound like a bad word at this point, after all the preaching we've heard. You don't have free will, I can assure you of that, and I don't have it, but you aren't perfectly made in the image of God in holiness and righteousness and knowledge. Adam had free will, and Adam's free will consisted in this. He had the power not to sin. He is a fancy Latin term for it because it's different depending on who you're talking about. Our will, the will of the saints in blessedness, uh, uh, Adam's will uh, before the fall and after the fall. But Adam had the power not to sin. And just so that we're all on the same plane here and we know I'm not cooking something up, I would like to read to you from John Calvin, from his institutes. He says this, God provided man's soul with a mind by which to distinguish good from evil. To this he joined the will, under whose control is choice. So we have the soul, the mind, the will, which leads to choice. In this integrity, man, by free will, had the power, if he so willed, to attain eternal life. Here, it would be out of place to raise the question of God's secret predestination, because our question is not what can happen or can't happen, but what man's nature was like. Therefore, Adam could have stood, if he wished, 
Seeing that he fell solely by his own will, his choice of good and evil was free, and not that alone, but the highest uprightness was in his mind and will, and all the organic parts, all the pieces of him, were rightly put together unto obedience, until in destroying himself he corrupted his own blessings. So God is not the author of sin, one, but two, he did permit the tempter to tempt Adam, knowing what the outcome would be. Three, Adam was perfect but changeable, giving him the ability to sin. But four, he also had a free will and had the power not to sin had he so chosen. So, how did he sin? How could he have sinned? I don't actually know. And I don't think anyone actually knows. Because this is the one point at which every book of theology I've ever seen skates. Because there isn't an answer now for us to understand fundamentally. Like I said, we can understand basically these things. We can understand the order of it. Satan came, he tempted him. Adam, uh, Eve was deceived. Adam rebelled. We can, under- we can understand what happened, but as to how it happened, as to how you could be perfect, and yet sin, probably we can't understand that. There is, however, the fifth fundamental fact, and that is, he did. So whether you understand why he did or not, you are living with the effects of it, as have all men, including Adam, from the moment it took place. Now, what was this sin? Well, the way it's, of course, presented in Genesis, uh, he ate of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, which was against the commandment of God. Uh, What was the sin? Was it merely eating some fruit off of a tree? No, that's silly. That's a very superficial reading of it. Now, you'll be happy to know that there are a number of of, uh, Catholic uh, teachings that, that Adam's sin was gluttony. Uh, that was that was Adam's sin was intemperance and gluttony. Uh, now that of course would have been a monstrous sin for a perfect person to commit, but that is not what Adam's sin was. Nor was Adam tricked. Now this is where it starts to get serious. This is where we really start having a hard time understanding how Adam could have sinned when we start to see what the sin was. Adam wasn't tricked. First Timothy two. 13 and 14, Adam was formed first, then Eve. And Adam was not deceived. But the woman being deceived was in the transgression. Adam, I mean, how much plainer can you say it? Adam was not deceived. Well, what does that mean? That means that Adam knew what he was doing. He knew exactly what he was doing. And he had to have had some even perhaps inkling of what the consequences would be considering God had told him in the day you eat of this you shall surely die. So what does that mean? It means it was like apostasy. Which is defined in Hebrews 10.26 as this. Willfully sinning after you have received the knowledge of the truth. It was a complete turning away from God in unbelief, 
coupled with pride and arrogance by one who knew God in truth and who up to that moment had a heart that was bent towards good. There is a fantastic passage in Calvin's Institutes on the sin in particular, and I just want to read it to you. We must take a fuller definition from the nature of the temptation which Moses describes. Since the woman, through unfaithfulness, was led away from God's word by the serpent's deceit, it is already clear that disobedience was the beginning of the fall. This Paul also confirms. But at the same time, it is to be noted that the first man revolted from God's authority, not only because he was seized by Satan's blandishments, but also because, contemptuous of truth, he turned aside to falsehood. And surely, once we hold God's word in contempt, we shake off all reverence for him. For unless we listen attentively to him, his majesty will not dwell among us, nor his worship remain perfect. Unfaithfulness, then, was the root of the fall, but thereafter ambition and pride together with ungratefulness arose, because Adam, by seeking more than was granted to him, shamefully spurned God's great bounty which had been lavished upon him. To have been made in the likeness of God seemed a small matter to a son of earth unless he also attained equality with God, a monstrous wickedness. If apostasy, by which man withdraws from the authority of his maker, indeed insolently shakes off his yoke, if apostasy is a foul and detestable offense, it is in vain to extenuate Adam's sin, yet it was not even simple apostasy, but was joined with vile reproaches against God. These assented to Satan's slanders, which accused God of falsehood and envy and ill will. And lastly, faithlessness opened the door to ambition, and ambition was indeed the mother of obstinate disobedience. As a result, men, having cast off the fear of God, threw themselves wherever lust carried them. Adam would never have dared oppose God's authority unless he had disbelieved in God's word. Here indeed was the best bridle to control all passions, the thought that nothing is better than to practice righteousness by obeying God's commandments, than that the ultimate goal of the happy life is to be loved by him. Therefore Adam, carried away with the devil's blasphemies as far as he was able, extinguished the whole glory of God. Now when you put it that way, that it was rebellion to the word of God, unbelief, faithlessness, ambition, pride, insolent, high-handed, unseating of God in an attempt to become equal with Him, then we start to understand how the consequences could be so serious. It doesn't really help us understand how He could do it. But it does help us understand why what happened next happened. And so we turn to the fruit of Adam's sin, which, in a word, is death. The Lord God has said, if you eat from that tree, you will die the very same day. Ezekiel 18, all souls are mine. The soul that sins, it shall die, saith the Lord. Why? Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. When lust is conceived, James 1.15, it brings forth acts of sin. 
And sin, when it is finished, brings forth death. Now we can think of this two ways, depending on how you, what light you want to cast it in. We can think of death as the punishment for sin, in the sense that, you know, you break the speed limit, you get a ticket. That it is the, the judgment, the punishment, that a righteous God levies upon sin. Or, that's if we look at it in God's judicial character, or we can look at it in that other way, looking at the nature of man and the nature of God, and we can see death as the natural outcome of sin. Like, if you jump off the Empire State Building, you will die. That is the natural result of that action. Sin is death. It has death bound up in it. So when you choose sin, you choose the consequences of sin, which is death. Because it is all that is contrary to God, and God is life and light. And of course it's death looked at two ways. Physical death and spiritual death. There was, on the one hand an immediate corruption of Adam's flesh. Death entered into the world. This is the teaching, and is crucial to the teaching of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in which Paul uh, is essentially making an extended argument about some people who were denying the resurrection. There was no resurrection, they said. They claimed to be Christians, but they denied the resurrection. And Paul says, no, you're completely wrong, because if Jesus wasn't raised from the dead, then you're all going to die in your sins and perish. And he explains, uh, beginning at verse 21, he says, For since by man came death, by man came also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ shall all be made alive. But every man in his own order, Christ the firstfruits, and afterwards those who, are, who belong to Christ when he comes. Then comes the end when, she, when he shall have delivered up the kingdom to God, even the Father. When Christ shall have put down all rule and all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that shall be destroyed is death. And the entire context of this passage is physical death. Men dying, men being raised from the dead. So death, the death of 1 Corinthians 15 that came by man, that is in Adam, is physical death. And he explains finally in the end that at the resurrection we'll not all sleep but we'll be changed. For the corruptible must put on incorruption, and the mortal must put on immortality. And then will be brought to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. Now, I can hear an objection. You say, well, according to my Bible, Adam lived to be 930 years old. So how did he die that day? Well, he did. Because he became immediately subject to the power of death. He became a dying man, which is what every single person in this room is. 
It is appointed unto men once to die, and after this the judgment, Hebrews 9, 27. And that's the result of Adam's sin. We all became subject to the power of death. Unless the return of Christ intervenes, every person in this room will face death. We will be separated, body and soul, to await the resurrection. His body began at that moment a process that it had never known, which was aging, pain, sweat, toil, incorruption, revealed there as part of the punishments that God assigned to him. His incorruptible, if you will, put on corruption. Death entered and took reign over the natural world, in fact. It became a world of death. Everything started dying. A thing that had never happened before. Death reigned, Romans 5.14. Death reigned. Physical death. But then there was, perhaps much more importantly, Adam's spiritual death. And that was immediate. In fact, that happened not later. It happened the moment he conceived and executed sin. He died. He became dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2.1. The image of God which he bore was, if you will, inverted, reversed. He became not the reflection of God, he became the reflection of the opposite of God. Where there had been knowledge unto fellowship, there was ignorance and error and superstition and a clouded mind and every wrong thing that a person could think and then his entire view of God was destroyed and so all fellowship was interrupted. Where there had been righteousness so pure that he could stand before God with no accusation able to be brought against him, there was only and always guilt. And where there had been true holiness inward emanating out Outward, there became absolute depravity. A complete corruption inside. Now this corruption, as they say, the corruption of the whole nature, is what you will commonly see referred to as original sin. Original sin. That's a little bit misleading because the term original sin sounds like it means like the sin that Adam committed, the original sin, the first sin. But theologically the way it's used is to refer to a actually a result of Adam's sin, which is the corruption of the whole nature. And it is an inward corruption. Mankind, as our confession puts it, is completely defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. We now have a sin nature. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Jeremiah 17.9 The carnal mind is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God neither can it be? Romans 8, 7. 
And finally, for I know that in me, that is in my flesh, dwelleth no good thing. Romans 7.18 The heart, the mind, the flesh, defiled, corrupted. There is the taint, the stain of sin. There is the tendency to sin. There is the inclination, not merely the tendency, but the inclination to sin. But as if that weren't enough, there's a delight in sin. Just the reverse of the image of God. This corruption is extensive, just as Adam's holiness had been. It touches every part of the human soul. God saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only evil and that continually. Genesis 6-5, just before the destruction of the earth. And then he comes back and says something very similar after the destruction of the earth. So it isn't just like people before, before the flood. It isn't like people before the flood were really, really rotten and after that they improved. Because I think it's in Genesis 8, he says basically the same thing. Inward, extensive, and perpetual. It is without relent. It is relentless, this corruption. What then? Are we better than they? No. For we have before proved both Jews and Gentiles that they're all under sin. There's none righteous, no, not one, as it is written. There's none that understands. There's none that seeks after God. They're all gone out of the way. They are all become unprofitable. There's none that doeth good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. With their tongues they use deceit. The poison of vipers is under their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. In the way of peace have they not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Romans 3, 9 and following. You should be well familiar with it uh, by now from our regular uh, Sunday morning studies. And so it is this inward corruption, this total depravity that then leads to all of the actual acts of sin. From where do wars and fightings among you come? Do they not come from here of the lusts that war in your members? You lust and you have not. You kill and you desire to have and you cannot obtain. You fight and war, yet you have not because you ask not. And when you ask and receive not, it's because you ask wrongly that you may consume it upon your lusts. James 4.1 Even religion is corrupted. They don't pray, and if they do pray... They don't get what they pray for because they're only asking for things to spend on their lusts. Lord, won't you buy me a Mercedes-Benz, essentially? Adam's nature became the reverse of the two great commandments. Instead of loving the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength, he became absolutely opposed with all of his heart and soul and mind and strength. Instead of loving his neighbor instead of loving his neighbor as himself, what happened? Titus three three. 
We ourselves were sometimes foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving diverse lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, and hating one another. Well, that's about as opposite as you can get of loving your neighbor as yourself, hateful and hating one another. Now, how bad was the damage? It's like when you're in a car accident, you know. How bad was the damage? Is the car drivable? Will you still be able to go? Will we be able to limp along, at least get sort of, at least in the direction of our destination, or is it totaled? Well, to mix metaphors, let's think of it this way. Imagine the finest piece of crystal, like a crystal bowl, perfect, perfectly formed, oh, that reflects the light all the perfect ways, and you can look in every little facet of it, and there's not the tiniest little fog or anything like that. It's just a beautiful, gorgeous piece of crystal, and, and, and if you auctioned it at Sotheby's, it would be priceless. Now imagine that you took your piece of crystal and you raised it up over your head and you smashed it on a concrete floor and it shattered into a million pieces. What kind of fool would you have to be to pick up one of the pieces and say, oh, look, it's not totally gone. I mean, here's a piece right here. But you know that that is what mankind universally believes if it admits the fall at all it says well maybe it wasn't that bad I mean sure we lost some of that holiness we lost some of that righteousness but every man has good inside of him I mean there's just this remnant of the image of God and so we're all basically good and that's why God loves everybody fool that's what that person is. A fool who doesn't even know his own heart. Who is deceiving himself or herself about their own true nature. And here is, of course, the bad news. Which is that the corruption of Adam's whole nature, which took place in a moment was not confined to Adam. It didn't stop there. It, as the confession says, it passes to all humanity descended from him by ordinary generation. Now what does that mean, ordinary generation? That just means that everybody who's descended from Adam that is born in the regular way, which is they have a human father and a human mother, suffers from the corruption of original sin. The reason that it is stated that way is, of course, because Jesus Christ does not suffer from the corruption of original sin. That's why he was miraculously conceived. But it passes to all humanity descended from him in the ordinary way. This is a fascinating passage in Genesis 5 where it's about to start the... Uh, uh, it's not a chronology, the, the uh, genealogy of Adam. And it starts over again with the creation of Adam. This is the book of the generations of Adam. In that day that God 
God created man in the likeness of God made he him male and female created he them and blessed them and called their name Adam in the day when they were created. Okay, it's interesting. We already know all that. And Adam lived 130 years. Now listen to this. And begat a son in his own likeness after his own image and called his name Seth. Now, are they trying to say that Seth looked like Adam? Is that what the deal is? No. The children of Adam are in the image of Adam. Just as Adam before the fall was in the image of God. Now it is a natural law that everything reproduces according to its own kind. Like begets like. Basically, we understand that. Breed two Doberman Pinschers, you get a Doberman Pinscher. You don't get a St. Bernard. You don't get a cow or a horse. Everything produces according to its own kind. And so, you can then ask the question that is asked in Job 14.4. Who can bring a clean thing out of an unclean? Not one. Well, if that's the case... Then John says in John 3, 6, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. Kind according to kind. Back to Job 15, verse 14. What is man that he should be clean? And he which is born of a woman that he should be righteous? Behold, Psalm 51, I was shaped in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me? Kind according to kind, Adam lived 130 years and begat a son in his own likeness and according to his own image. And what image was that? Corruption, depravity, destruction, enmity with God, sinfulness, wretchedness, Misery, death. It's like a spiritual genetic defect in which every single soul that is born is stillborn. D O A. Death breeds death. That is the first part of the fruit of Adam's sin. In fact, that is the fruit of Adam's sin. Where we're going to go from here uh, next Sunday morning is we're going to look at not merely the results in terms of the corruption of the whole nature, we're going to look at the actual guilt of Adam's sin. And we're going to ask this question. What if a man who descended from Adam by ordinary generation, what if a man, not Jesus, just a normal person like you or me, what if a man somehow didn't have that corrupt nature and never committed personally 
sin. What would be his standing before God and why? Why? 